we, we get into our last series today on respectable sins. And uh, uh, the reason that we end here is because this, see, uh, this, this sermon, this thing that we talk about today, this respectable sin, uh, it, it's, it's the biggie. And I know probably every week it's felt like that to some of you, right? To some of you, depending on what sin we've talked about, you've probably felt like it was the biggie. Um, but, but this is one today that's all-encompassing. And, and the reason for that is because the sin that we talk about today, no matter how respectable it has become in the world we live in, I need you to understand something. The sin we talk about today is actually the root of all sin. So when we get this figured out today, when we talk about this sin, which by the way, we're talking about selfishness and we're talking about idolatry, it is the root of all sin. And we're all guilty of it. I don't care how righteous you are. We're all guilty of selfishness. We're all guilty of idolatry. And we're all guilty of it to a degree because that's what happens with fallen man. Okay, let's define our terms to start with. Idolatry is simply this. It's the worship of idols. Now, when I say idol worship, idolatry, some of you automatically think of little statues, okay, or shrines that you might go to. Specifically in other countries, you might have a shrine that you would go to where you would worship idols, um, where you would have small g gods with different shrines. So it's the god of this, and I would go and worship here. Usually it's probably some kind of chicken sacrifice and some other goofy things. I could leave flowers and money. Um, if you go to Lotus, man, I love Chinese food. You go to Lotus, you can throw some change at the, the little shrine Buddha they have sitting in the corner. Okay? When we think idol worship, that's what we think. But that's such a narrow view of idol worship, and we'll see that as we go, but uh, the worship of idols or excessive devotion or reverence for some person or thing. An idol is anything that replaces God in the center of your life. So unless you are living your life sold out for Jesus Christ, then you've got idols in your life, okay? And they can be anything. For some people, it's a car. If that's you, then you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you love that car. You spend more time with that car than you do with your kids. And you wash it, and you polish it, and you talk nicer to it than you do to your wife. And you love that thing. And for some of you, it's your animals. For some of you, it's your job. For some of you, it's yourself. Okay? But an idol is anything that takes the place of God in my life. And the only place that God should be in my life should be the center. Okay? And selfishness. Selfishness is the attitude of being concerned with myself over and above everyone else. Now, when those two things come together, they create this idolatry in our lives that runs rampant and that has become altogether acceptable and respectable. And it's the heart of sin that we have to deal with. See, here's something that you need to understand. What you need to understand is that um, idolatry is the natural outpouring of a life that's self-focused. 
When your life is all about you, you first, what you want, what makes you happy, what makes you fulfilled, what gets you excited, what gets you satisfied, when your life is all about you first, idolatry is a natural outpouring of that. And the self-centered life is ultimately going to leave you broken. Something I need you to understand, it's going to be a theme that runs through our message here today, something that you have to, you, you have to figure out. Simply this. You have value. You're important. But this life is not about you. This life was never supposed to be about you. You are not the center of the universe. Your happiness is never the goal. Your self-fulfillment is a myth. It was never about any of that. It was never supposed to be about any of that. See, this is the problem. When we start talking about cutting respectable sins out of our lives, we start talking about making our life about something other than what makes us fulfilled, something other than what makes us happy, and we get so confused because we think... We think that our happiness is our chief goal. That my feeling good about myself, right? What is it? It's, it's Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. That when I've got that, that everything flows and everything is right. And that when I've got enough money so that I can support myself and that I can, I can support and provide for my family. See, I add my family in and now it can feel altruistic, right? Or I've got enough so that I can give to people, right? And so, so you know, it's one of those things that I, I can make it feel a little bit better about myself or, you know, when I got the right woman, that'll finally make all the difference. Or I get the right guy, that that'll finally make it be what it was always supposed to be. Or when I get to the level at work that, darn it, I deserve that people should recognize. See, we live life in a way that makes it all about us, and the problem is that it betrays this thing. You'll never be satisfied, and you'll never be satisfied because it was never about you. The only time it ever became about you was when sin entered the picture. It's never, ever, ever been about us. And you know what? It starts that way. So we're going to start, and like we've done all through this series, we're going to go back to the root of this, and we're going to see that it happens in Genesis chapter 3. You know Genesis chapter 3 well, even if you don't know Genesis chapter 3, um, you know the story. It's the story of the fall of mankind, right? You know how it works. God creates everything. Everything is perfect. Everything is awesome. Um, everything is good, right? It's the way it was designed to be. God creates everything in this wonderful, perfect harmony. He creates the animals. He brings them all before Adam. Adam names them, right? And he goes through the process, all the while looking for a helper for himself. No helper found. God says, I got you covered, causes him to fall into a deep sleep, creates the woman. Okay, Adam sees the woman. He says, this one right here. I'm going to name her woman, okay? Because she came from man, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what it's supposed to be. This is this goodness, this 
healthiness in relationship, and they were naked, and they were unashamed, and everything was right. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And here's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there if you want or follow along. I just have a couple of the verses on the screen here. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, of course, the serpent in this story, we're talking Satan here. We're talking the enemy of our souls. We're talking the one who seeks to oppress you. You know what we're talking about when we talk Satan? We're talking about the guy, the, the devil, okay, the demon that wants you to be happy over everything else. I mean, I, I hope you get that. That's weird. I mean, l- l- let me go back and, and, and repeat that for you so you can really understand what we're talking about. Satan wants you to be happy above everything else. Satan will wreck you if you try to be holy. Satan will wreck you if you try to pursue righteousness. But as long as you are on the path of happiness, he will be happy to oblige because he knows it'll never fulfill. It'll never satisfy. It will never get you what it is that you were created to have. But here's here's how he goes. He says, Um, the shrewdest of all animals. And he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And of course, God never said anything um, like that. And so the woman says, of course we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. And the serpent says this, you won't die. You won't die. He told the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Right here. You want to know where your selfishness and your pride comes from? It's this moment. You want to know where your idol worship, you want to know where this all is rooted? It's rooted right here. Satan comes to the woman who's living in perfection. She is living in this grand paradise that God has created. Everything is good. Everything is right. And Satan comes to her and Satan says, you know why God doesn't want you to have that? Because it's going to make you important. You know why God doesn't want you to have that? It's because you're going to be like him. That's what he says. Your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted to be like God. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband. And in this story, if you've got this played out in your mind, it's not like Adam came home from work. It's not like Adam comes home from work and is like, Eve, what did you do? No, no, Adam's like, I mean, he's like standing there. He's like watching this thing happen. Great leadership, huh? Right? He doesn't stop her. He takes it. He eats the same thing. He takes it and he eats. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. Listen to me. It was good and it was right. And then the sin that starts it all was the desire to be like God. 
Any of you ever seen the cartoon Aladdin? Right? When Jafar is really powerful at the end. I know, I'm sorry, I'm geeking out a little bit. Just work with me. Um, so Jafar at the end, you know, he's this big, powerful sorcerer, but, but he still can't be satisfied. Like, he rules everything. He's the most powerful evil sorcerer ever in all of the evil sorcerers that have ever lived in cartoon Disneyland. Right? But it's not good enough because the genie has more power than him. So he wishes to be a genie. Of course, then he gets stuck in the lamp and he goes and he has to live in the cave of wonder for a few thousand. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so, so it's always the desire to have more. It's the selfishness that, li- that wants more, that's always looking for something else. And it's what happened with Adam. It's what happened with Eve. It's what happened in the garden. You know what? It's what happened with Satan. Look at this, in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, um, all Old Testament scholars are telling you that this is talking about Satan himself. How you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens and set my throne above God's star. You understand, the same sin that caught us in the garden is the same sin that caught Satan in heaven. And it's the desire to be more than God. It's the desire to set ourselves above God. It's the desire to take what we want and make it of primary importance. And that's what happened. And Satan knows they'll bite, and he knows they'll take it, and it's what happened, and sin entered the world, and it's been running rampant ever since. That's why God makes this command in Exodus 20. It says, you must not make for yourself. This is part of the Ten Commandments, commandment number two. First one is, hey, there is one God. Worship God. It's only God. God, God, God. Me. I'm here. Worship me. I'm the only one that's worthy of this. I'm the only God that exists. Worship me. In case you're not clear, we get on to commandment two, which says, therefore... You must not make for yourself an idol from any kind of image or anything in the heavens or the earth or the sea. You must not bow down to them and worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. See, so what happens is we get into this and we see this connection between idolatry and selfishness. Selfishness starts because we want to be the center of our own universe. Selfishness starts because we want to be in control of everything. Now, be honest with yourself. How much of your life do you spend trying to be in control of everything? How much of your time and energy do you spend? How much of your sin is rooted in this idea that this thing, I know better, but it'll make me happy. This thing, I know better, but it's too hard to stop. It's not worth it. This sin, I know it's not okay, but darn it if it doesn't make me feel good. See, we spend all of our time rooted there. God knows this. He says, you're not the center of your universe. I am the center of your universe, and you don't make anything else that you can look at or that you can worship or that you can understand that's going to be the center of your universe because it's not you, it's me. And this is the way this whole thing shakes out. That's why we have to be on guard. Look, idols... What they are for us, whether it's, it's an idol that you go worship or whether it's something that happens just in your heart or whatever it is that you've given priority in your life, 
the reason that we love idols is because we think they'll get us what we want. Half the time, listen to me, we make God into an idol. We take the God of the universe, we take Jesus Christ, God in flesh, here's what we do, we take him and then we, we give him a makeover. We make him cute. We make him cuddly. We, we make him grandfatherly. We, we put him in a position where, where he's a God that loves so much that he would never say no to anything. He would never be mad about anything. And if I do cross a line, he'll come around me. He'll give me a Werther's hard candy. He'll pat me on the back and he'll tell me, you're going to be okay. I love you so much more than that. Don't worry about it. You don't have to fix anything. See, we, we make God into an idol. And we do it because it's good for us. We like it. It feels right. It feels better. Except it never satisfies. It'll never satisfy. But we do it because we think it gets us something. Listen, idols are indulgent. You know the great thing about an idol? An idol works on a quid, a quid pro quo kind of a basis. Even God, when we make God an idol, it works on this quid pro quo kind of a basis. Like I want... So I will give you something, and then you in turn will give me what I desire. That's how idol worship works. Some of you, that's how your marriages work. Right? Like Carrie's like, I'll be extra nice to you because then you'll buy me Chinese food. <laughs> it always comes back to Chinese at our house. But this is how it works, right? So, so that's how an idol is. We're like, okay, well, we want God to do what we want. We want God to respond the way we want. So we'll go ahead and we'll, maybe I'll throw some money in the offering plate. Because we all know that if I throw money in the offering plate, that God must respond with the boyfriend that I've been waiting for. Right? Or we all know that if I agree to work in the nursery, that God obviously will respond by allowing me to get pregnant. These are weird examples. I don't want a boyfriend or to get pregnant. But you're tracking with me here, I hope. Okay, but this is how we do this thing. Okay, I do for them, they do for me. Here's the other thing. You know, when we think about idols, they're convenient. Idols can be traded with. Idols can be bartered with. This is the gut check time for some of you. God says, listen, I know you think you want that thing. I know you think you want that person. I know you think you want that possession. But you got to cut that out of your life. I know you think it's harmless, and I know you think it won't hurt you. I know you think you can work on your own timetable. God says, I know what's right, and I know what's wrong, and you better pursue righteousness, or I will deal with you. That's not how idols work. I can trade with idols. I can barter with idols. But God says this is holiness and this is what you pursue. Listen, unless we put God back in the center, there's no way we can live lives that are righteous. It just can't work. It doesn't work that way. And the Israelites know this all too well. You know the story, right? Exodus 32, 1. When the people saw how long it was taking, now this is God. Oh, this is so annoying. Um, it's so annoying because I could see me doing the exact same thing. God brings the people out of Egypt. I mean, he brings the people out of Egypt. You know that story, right? 
right? You get plagues, you get locusts, you get frogs, you get grasshoppers, you get hail that kills livestock, and then every, like the river turns to blood. I mean, God brings judgment on Egypt, all for the purpose of bringing his people out of captivity, out of slavery. Pharaoh finally says, after this tragic judgment uh, of, of the death of the firstborn, he says, go, take your people and go. And they go and they leave. By the way, they loot. <laughs> they loot, right? The Egyptians on their way out. They got gold and clothes and jewels and livestock and everything that they could possibly want. God says, ask for it, take it. And they go. And so it's like they plundered the army without ever battling. God battled for them and they leave. Pharaoh gets upset. Pharaoh runs after them thinking, oh, wait, time out. I got to go kill those people. I'm mad at God, but they're the ones that, that, that are God's people here on earth. I'm going to get them. And so he chases after them. And God's like, oh, that's inconvenient. I better part the Red Sea. And I better have you walk through on dry land. And then after you get to the other side and Pharaoh's armies are all in the middle of the Red Sea, I better let the water go back where it wants to go and drown Pharaoh's entire army. God decimates Egypt. His people, the Israelites, are the recipient of all of this good stuff. They get to Mount Sinai where Moses goes up to meet with God. I mean, their leader, the guy that's been working with them, the guy that's been showing them all the wonderful signs and, and miracles that God's doing, says, I'm going to go up in the mountain and I'm going to talk to somebody for a minute. Oh, by the way, that's God, right? We're going to hang out. God's going to give me laws and decrees for his people so that we can live lives that honor and are holy to him. Okay, so we're going to go up here. But there's one rule you got to follow, God says first. Before I go up the mountain, he says this. He says, oh, time out. Okay, so, so don't make any carved images. You know, it's almost like he's saying, hey, you know what? Part of you is going to be thinking that you're going to want to make like an idol to worship. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. I mean, literally, a chapter before Moses goes up the mountain, he tells them, don't do this. It's like telling your kids, whatever you do while we're gone, don't do that. And then he goes up the mountain. I mean, listen, you know how that ends. He goes up the mountain, and Moses has gone 40 days. 40 days. They've been in captivity 400 years. All of these signs, miracles, and wonders, but he's gone for 40 days, and they get antsy. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. See, this is a sin that goes back to the beginning. God says, don't do it. I want you to notice, Exodus 20, God says, don't do it. Exodus 32, they say, hey, let's do this. I got a good idea. Let's make some idols. I love, I love how they even say, they even use the word idol. Let's make some small g gods. Not one. Let's make a group of small g gods that we can all have our own. We can all take our own little god and we can take it home and it could be the center of our universe and we can worship it and it'll give us everything we want. That doesn't end well for them, by the way. They make a golden calf. Um, right? Right? God burns it. He crushes it. He puts it in water. He makes the people drink their golden calf um, and then slaughters the 3,000 who worshiped it. There's your kindly 
Werther's original candy grandfather right there who orders Moses and the Levites to slaughter 3,000 people who chose to worship an idol instead of following the laws of the God of the universe. Listen to me. God takes your sin seriously. In case you're confused, that's the whole point of the cross, is that God takes your sin seriously. The Israelites' sin that day was tragic, and it cost them their lives. And if you read about their escapades in the wilderness, it happens again and again and again because they choose to follow idols. They choose to follow themselves. They choose to chase what makes them happy or what they think will make them happy instead of what the God of the universe has for them. And they chase the wrong things and it fails them every single time because they can't remember this one simple thing. And that's that it was never about you. It was never about them. It wasn't supposed to be. And we do the same thing. It's the point of the cross is that God takes sin seriously. Your sin, uh, listen, I, you've heard this, it's Easter time, so you're going to hear it some more. I, I, I get it, I understand, I know it sounds flippant, I don't mean it to be flippant whatsoever. Your sin drove a nail through Jesus into the cross. My sin, not in this kind of random, like, oh, my sin is bad kind of way, as in my sin drove a nail through the hands of Jesus Christ on the cross, because if it was just me, he would have died on the cross for just me, because sin is that serious and God loves you that much. Sometimes we get this picture of what happened on the cross, and this is, I think I I think this is one of the reasons why we feel free to continue to sin, actually. And it's this weird thing. We get this idea that Jesus had to die on the cross for other people. And my sin just kind of got thrown up there, too. Like, Jesus was going to die, right? He was going to die anyway, so why not die for my sin, too, right? And and since he was going to die anyway and my sin just got thrown up there, too, well, then it doesn't really add any weight. It doesn't really hurt. I can just kind of do whatever I want. Not a big deal. I mean, Jesus already died. It's not like he's going to die again, right? It's not like there were more nails because I said, listen to me, if it was just you, Jesus would have chosen death on the cross so that you could be reconciled to God the Father. This is the guy that leaves the 99. He says, he says, leave the 99 and go find the one and bring it back. And when you bring him back, there will be such celebrating in heaven over that one. Listen to me. It's you. You're that one. Your sin costs. It's a big deal. It's not easy. It's not flippant. It's not something that you can just do without caring about the ramifications. God shows us here in Exodus 32. He says, don't do this. And they do it because they're selfish. They do it because they want something in front of them that they can look at, something that they can pray to, something that will give them what they want. And and he says, don't. And they do. And then all of a sudden there's death and mayhem and destruction that happens because of it. But don't think that same thing isn't happening in your life. It's just different. Because the penalty's been paid, but you're still reeling because you continue 
to put yourself in the center of your universe. Here's the deal. Uh, I think I skipped a thing there. No, I, that's the one I want. Oh, man. I got clumsy fingers this morning. Sorry about that. So here's, here's what it says. God says, have no images before me. So how do we fight this? How do we understand about selfishness and idolatry in your life? Look, God says, you are not to have any image before me. But we say, but, but we like to. It makes us feel good. But here's the deal. There is no one that you look at to see what God is like. There's only one person, right? There's no statue. There's no cross. There's no stained glass window. There's no beautiful cathedral-like churches. There's no um, saints of old that are going to do for you what you need them to do because God is the one that's in the center of your universe. God is the one that this is all about. And God says, look, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And you're like, but I need this picture. I need this little statue. I need this horoscope. I need these things to remind me what God is like. I need these things to get guidance in my life. And, and, and we, I'm sorry, did I just do horoscopes? That probably made some of you angry. Horoscopes, they're bad too. You're a Sagittarius, I'm glad. Has nothing to do with anything important ever. It just doesn't. But you're like, Matt, there's power in that. Like I read my horoscope and it's right, right? And I find that if I try to have a relationship with another Taurus, it never works out. That's a thing, right? And if I have a relationship with a Capricorn, then it's always good. Well, of course it is, man. There's power in that. There's power in that. You know that, right? You go, you, you go and get life coaching by Sherry, the psychic, on uh, Blair's Ferry Road. <laughs> I'm not advertising for her, by the way. <laughs> One of two things is, is going to happen. Either you're going to be swindled because there's nothing real about it, or you're going to find out that there is something real about it, and if there's something real about it, then it's demonic. It just is what it is, right? But we get this, we get this goofiness where, where we're like, but these things pay off. Like, I can pray to the God of the universe and nothing happens, but these things pay off. But they're idols and they're selfish and they're self-indulgent. They work on a quid pro quo. They give. It's not real. It's demonic. It's fake at best. At worst, it's demonic. You, you just, you need to know that stuff. You got to understand that there is only one picture of God that has ever existed. And the only picture of God that's ever existed has been Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, we'll actually drill a lot down on this next week on Easter. This is a text that we'll look at a lot, but it says Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like, then you look at Jesus Christ. But you know what? Even that we screw up. You know that word there for image? That word there for image is where we get another word, um, and, and we use it all the time. It's, it's the word um, for uh, icon. And our churches are full of icons even. That word for image, and, and God says there is only one image of the invisible God, and that's Jesus Christ. That's where we, in the church world, get our word for icons, right? Um, stained glass windows. Statues of Mary. Crosses. Candles that we light. 
St. Joseph statues that we bury in our yard so we can sell our house more quickly. That's a thing. And it's easy to get sucked into idols because we make it all about us. It's easy to get sucked into idols because idols will do things for me. They'll do what I want them to do without asking for holiness. That's why it's so dangerous. The worst idol around is, is, is because of our selfishness, because we, we want to be the God of the universe, we remake God in an image that we're comfortable with. And we say, well, he's okay with that. My God. How many times do you hear this from people? My God's okay with that. Like the God I serve would never be against that. You're like, well, but, but God tells you to pursue holiness, which means this relationship that you're in is not okay. Well, my God would never tell me to choose this, him over love. My God wouldn't make me pick. Said, but, but, God says, but, but God says that you're not supposed to look at pornography. Right? I mean, you're, just, you're not supposed to engage in sin. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But my God, you know, will, will forgive me that because he knows that it's just me. It doesn't hurt anybody else. It's problematic, guys. And you're really in danger. We're really in danger when these things become mediatory. When I say mediatory, it's, it's when I use them to get the blessings of God. In Hebrews, we read that we, because of Jesus Christ, the only picture of God, the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus, we go directly to the throne room, which means I don't need anybody else to get to the throne room. I don't need to be here at church to get to the throne room. If you view this church as the place where you and God can get intimate, then you have a wrong picture of this church. If you view um, your, your horoscope as the way that God talks to you, we need to have a conversation. It, 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 <laughs> I mean, let's have it now. This is the Bible, and God will speak to you through this, not through the editor of the newspaper that tells you that this is true for all Capricorns that happen to be celebrating their birthday this week. Or I don't even know what horoscopes really, how they, it, the, right? But we use those things because they're immediate. We say, well, it, it, it's how God, no, it's not. Jesus Christ is how God works in your life. That's it. You don't, you don't need to pray to anyone else. You don't need to be anywhere special. You don't need to engage anything additional. You go straight to God through his word and through prayer. But guys, this isn't going to work when it's not going to work for us when we keep getting sucked back into the same thing. See, we're, we're at week six of a six-week series about cutting sin out of our life. And, and if there's sin in your life that you haven't worked to cut out yet, like we've gone all this way, you know why that is? It's because you have made yourself the center of your universe. When you refuse to cut sin out of your life, I, listen, I don't care how hard it is. That sounds harsh. I care. 
I mean, I care how hard it is. I understand. I empathize with how difficult it is. But if you refuse to cut sin out of your life because it's hard, then you are not worshiping God. You are worshiping yourself. When you refuse to walk away from things that you know are wrong because it's hard or because it's inconvenient or because it comes with a whole other mess of problems, then you're worshiping yourself. You're not worshiping God. And it's just time for us to call that what it is. It's idolatry. It's doing the exact thing that God said no to. It doesn't work. Okay, and so we need to have a life that is about something different. Okay, so a couple of practical steps. A couple of practical steps to understand that life is not about you, that you need to live differently. These are things that you can start to do. One is understand, look, life isn't about you. So I'm not saying that, that you're trying to put God, I'm not, I'm not talking about a bartering system where you're like, okay, well, I'll think about myself only 12 times today and I'll try to think about God 15. Or if I, got, if I give God this much of my life, then maybe I can hold on to these little chunks. No, no, no. I mean, it is not about you. Think less of yourself. Look at, look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try, don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What was Christ Jesus' attitude? Well, it was this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself further in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Now, I want you to track this with me now because this is the boiling point. This is it. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who deserved to be honored and recognized as God, the creator of existence. This is the creator of the universe. Nothing exists that doesn't exist because of his will. And he decided that he was worth less. He didn't think of equality with God, even though he was God himself, the second person of the Trinity. He didn't think equality with God is something that he needed to hold on to. Instead, here's what he did. He gave up his divine privileges. I have no divine privileges. But boy, I like to act like I do, don't I? I have no divine privileges. Jesus had divine privileges. He gladly gave up his divine privileges for my benefit. I don't have any divine privileges, but I'm going to take all that I can, and I'm going to make my life about all of my divine privileges. Even though they don't really exist, it's just me worshiping myself. But listen, you will not grow. You will not move. You cannot be the person that God has intended you to be if you continue to claim your rights instead of God's holiness. Jesus had the right to claim things, but he gave them up. You don't have the right to claim them, but you pull them all in anyway. 
And you won't move unless that happens, unless you start thinking less of yourself. And the other thing here is this, it's, it's, you got to make generosity your trademark. You're like, but Matt, how do I stop making it about me? How do I think less of myself? How do I make it about other people? Well, you make generosity your trademark. This is what God says in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You decide in your heart how much to give, and you don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. God loves a person who gives cheerfully. See, God knows, he tells us elsewhere, that the love of money is the root of evil. Money's not bad. Have money. Money's good. Okay? But when you love it and when you desire it above everything else, because let's be honest, what it all comes down to, for some of us, is this sense of safety and security and what we have and what we want and how we can honor ourselves. Okay, so you, you want to grow and you want to be less about selfishness and less about idolatry. You want to get past that. You want to cut that sin out of your life. Then it is not about you. Think less of yourself. Give your rights up, your right to be happy. You're right, all of that stuff, because none of it works anyway. There's only one way to be happy, and it's the God of the universe. There's only one way to have purpose, and it's submitting to the God who designed and created you. There is only one way for your life to have meaning, and that is for you to outlive yourself. I mean, if you really want your life to matter, then you better outlive yourself. And you don't do that by collecting more and more and more. You do that by pouring yourself out. You be like Jesus. Give up your rights. And you live a life that's marked by generosity with your time, the way you spend it. With your treasure, the way you spend it. With your talent, the way that you use it. With all of those things. Okay? Because ultimately, and I know we, uh, I know we, we talk about this sometimes and it gets ha-ha funny funny, but... There will be a point in 50,000 years, I know it's, it's a weird number, we just keep picking 50,000 years, but there'll be a point in 50,000 years where the things that you pursue to make you happy now, they will not matter. The stuff that you collect, it will not matter. Who had relational problems with who, right? Who went to bed a little bit hungry or who didn't get to go on their best vacation or who didn't drive the car that they wanted to have or whose house was a, a few bedrooms smaller than they maybe would have liked or any of those things, there will get to be a point in time where none of that matters. But some of us, some of us are going to be very embarrassed. Some of us will be so embarrassed because we will have poured out our time, our talent, our treasure on things that don't matter. Something that drives me, and I hope it's something that drives you too, I don't want to be embarrassed on that day. My salvation is fine. I'm not worried about my salvation. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He died for your. I've accepted him. I'm striving to live a life. I hope that you are too. But I got to be honest with you. Sometimes the decisions I make every day, there will be a point in time where I will be embarrassed to answer for them because I just know better. I have a feeling that's true for you too. And so it's time to decide. It's time to decide what we're going to do. So don't be embarrassed. And you know what? Here's the other thing. 
Um, we're going we're to close a little differently today. I'm not going to have the praise team come up. We're just going to pray together, and I'm going to ask you to reflect. And here's the thing. I'll invite you. If, if you need to sit and pray and do business with God, then sit and pray and do business with God. You want to come up front and do some business with God? Come up front and do business with God. You want to skip away like there's nothing wrong? Skip away like there's nothing wrong. Maybe for you there really isn't, and that's okay too. Okay? But, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, is, is it time for you to stop studying the playbook? Is it time to stop figuring out how, in theory, we could run the plays? And is it time to actually run some plays? Right? I mean, how many Bible studies are we going to attend? I love Bible studies. I love small group. How many small groups are you going to put yourself in? How much teaching are you going to surround yourself with? How many times are you going to ask people to pray for you? How many times are you going to utter the words, I know... It's not okay, but I'm trying, or but it's hard, or but I don't know what. Perhaps it's time to stop studying and start doing. Perhaps it's time to get in the game. You don't get bonus points for amassing knowledge. It's time to cut sin ruthlessly out of our lives. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And then I'm going to ask you to do whatever you have to do, okay? Because we can't continue to walk away from here Sunday after Sunday, harboring sin, letting it eat away at us, and assuming that it won't affect our relationship with God. It does not work. And ultimately, hear me, there is a point where he will stop tolerating it. Not out of anger, but out of love for you. He won't tolerate it. Heavenly Father, God, we just, we love you. We come before you. We ask you. We ask you to bless us. We ask you uh, to give us wisdom. We ask you to help us see areas in our life where we have continued to put ourselves in the center, where we have continued to, to make it all about us. God, even though we might be coming to church, even though we might be going to Bible study, even though we might be talking about you, Father, we still sometimes are guilty of making it all about us. We make it about us because we refuse to just unashamedly give up everything and follow wherever you lead, no matter how uncomfortable and hard it is. And so, Father, we confess that to you. I confess that to you in my life. We collectively confess that to you, God, and we ask you to just grab hold of us. We ask you to break our hearts where they need to be broken. We ask you to help us submit. And Father, the areas in my life where sin reigns, where I feel like what I want is more important than what you want, Father, here in front of this group, I give you permission to break me. And Father, I ask you for people that call themselves Christians, for people that attend Blessed Hope Church, for people that, that desire to follow you but still have allowed sin to reign in their lives, Father, I ask you to break them. Because enough is enough. And God, we want you. We want revival. We want to see you move, not just here in our congregation, but in the city. We want a place where no one is going to hell. We want a place where no one is stuck in a life without hope, and none of that happens, Father, until we just follow you. And so, God, have your way. Break our hearts. Do business with us if you have to, but just do whatever is necessary. And God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you 
that you love us so much that you've given us salvation and you've given us a place to navigate these things. For Christians, our salvation is not on the table, but our life spent poured out to you is. And so take that and turn it upside down. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.